This is an oral history of the Lord's move in Plainview, Texas in the early 1960s. It's a story of what can happen when a small group of students love Christ and His church and give their lives to God's purpose in a practical way. The following is a testimony from James Barber, one of Witness Lee's earliest co-workers in the United States, originally spoken in Long Beach, California. It's a brief history of the Lord's recovery and his own personal experience that includes many details not previously shared in earlier episodes. Brothers asked me to share concerning first my own personal experience in coming into the Lord's recovery and also something of a history of the Lord's recovery since, especially in this country, since I have been here almost all of that time. It's been a wonderful time. Praise the Lord. Well, I think we realize that the Lord's recovery actually began with Martin Luther. <laughs> but I, really, it began with the Apostle Paul and, and John because of the church was already degrading when they wrote, when John wrote his gospel and his epistles, the church was already degrading. So we have to see the recovery goes all the way back to them. And uh, then the Apostle Paul's later books... His prison epistles, no doubt, especially the ones to Timothy, Amen. Titus, and Philemon, the church was also degraded, so degraded that Asia had left him. Right. Can you imagine? That means all the churches in Asia had turned their back on the Apostle Paul. That's hard to believe in his lifetime. So, uh, no doubt, recovery was trying to come in. At least recovery books were written, put it that way. But the church continued to degrade and to degrade and to degrade, of course, until it became the Roman Catholic Church. And you come into the period of the Dark Ages. The Dark Ages, somewhere from the 5th century to the 15th century, right in that area. And then, of course, Martin Luther was raised up. Amen. And the real recovery then began with him to recover, basically, justification by faith. That you don't need all the Roman Catholic things. You just need to believe. Amen. Have faith in Jesus Christ. Amen. I think we know this. Then after, of course, Martin Luther, you have probably... What, Zinzendorf before the Brethren, or the Brethren first? Zinzendorf was next with the Moravian Brethren. Right. Zinzendorf, and then after him, of course, the Brethren recovered all the basic teachings of the Bible. And then after them, you have some of the inner life being recovered by so many others. Of course, the inner life was even back with some with Madame Guyon in the Catholic Church. But all of these things were all working together. All of these different ones, we don't have the time to mention them all. But once Martin Luther started, you have Zinzendorf, you have the brethren recovering the basic teachings with the types in the Old Testament. Then you have the inner life people, such as Madame Guyon, and then, of course, you had Jesse Penn Lewis, later on even in this century, Austin Sparks. All of these ones 
were used by the Lord to recover certain aspects of the truth of the Lord's New Testament economy. Then, though the real one that put everything together, I think we all realized, was Watchman Nee. Watchman Nee had a photographic memory. This was told to us. I never heard Brother Lee say too much about this, but uh, Brother Samuel Chang always told us about this, that he could just read a book, you know, and just, just turn the page like this. And, of course, you have heard Brother Lee tell the story about how his room was filled with books. I mean, many of us have. You come into his room, it's just stacked, stacked with books all around. And actually what Watchman Nee did was to take the cream of all the writings from all the Christians from the first century up to then, which is up to the 1920s in there. He had everything, and he read everything. He read it all. Brother Lee said he didn't have to read it because Brother Nee read it and passed it on. He read everything and he took the best, that which was the scriptural truth. Everything that was of truth and of the scriptures they took. And so the Lord's recovery with Watchman Nee began in 1922 when he started his first meeting. But because of some of the ones that were meeting with him, eventually it didn't work out so well. In fact, they excommunicated him, I think is how it ended up. So he started again in 1928. And this one is the one in Shanghai that continued. This one continued. And of course, Brother Lee met him in June of 1933. So it had been going about five years. But, of course, even before Watchman Nee started his first meeting in 1928, he was putting out writings. His magazine called The Christian. And other writings. Brother Lee had read his writings before he ever met him. So, these two came together. I'm just making it brief. I think we're all familiar. But these two came together in 1933, and that's when Brother Lee, after a short period of time, became clear that there could not be two flows. That there is just one ministry, one flow, one testimony, one body, one move. One. <laughs> one recovery. So, Brother Nee had asked him to come there. To move there. So he did. So I think we're all familiar with this story. And of course, it was through Watchman Nee then that he recovered all the basic truths. Or I should put it this way. He took all the basic truths from the top of the Christian writings from the first century up till then. Plus the matter, of course, he received much help from Miss Emmy Barber who was there in the outskirts of Shanghai, very much helped in the matter of the inner life. So, through all of this truth, plus his own experience, through the inner life that he had received much help, then Watchman Nee began to see more and more. Not just what he had, you could say, taken from all of these books, but then through this, plus his experience of life, he began to see more and more in the Word until, you see, until I believe it was in 1938 
he gave the first conference, which were the messages concerning our mission, which was translated into the normal Christian church life. But it was entitled at that time, Concerning Our Mission. After he gave it in Chinese, then he rewrote it himself in English. And that was the book. This was not a translation. The book, Concerning Our Mission, was written in English by Watchman Nee after it was given in Chinese. And then that has, of course, almost word for word what we have now in our latest edition of the normal Christian church life. So, at that time, of course, then, there needed to be a container for all of this. All of these truths, all of the recovered truths of the Bible concerning Christ and the church, yet there was no container. What was needed was the basic ground of the church. What is the basis? What is the ground? What is the standing of the church? And of course, we've all read that book, and we know it was at that time he became clear from the Word, very clear. You can't argue. <laughs> from the Word, there is only one church in one city. Not because we like to have a doctrine of one church, one city. Some have tried that. Not because we like to have a doctrine, but because there is one body. Because of the oneness. One church, one city does not come out of somebody's idea of a doctrine. It comes out from the fact that there is only one body. And in order to keep the oneness of the one body, there can only be one expression of that one body in each geographical area. It makes sense. So in the Scriptures, it is clear there's only one church in one city. The church in Jerusalem, the church in Antioch, the church in Corinth, the church in Ephesus, on and on and on. And of course, there were some church meeting in the homes. We know this. Of course, we know every all the verses. But all of those churches meeting in the homes were churches that were standing for the lampstand in that city. Every one of them, we can prove it scripturally. And if you want to have all the verses, you can take Brother Nee's book, The Normal Christian Church Life, or further talks on the church life, or Brother Lee's book, which is uh, clear, you might say, the practical expression of the church. And all the verses are there to show clearly all the mentions to churches meeting in the homes are actually churches meeting in a city. Mainly it was Rome, I believe, Ephesus, uh, Colossae. Anyway... They became clear at this time that there was a real ground for the oneness of the body in the practical meeting of the church life. This was in 1938. Okay, then they began to further the Lord's recovery in China. From 1938 on, of course, Brother Nee began to see more and more and more, as Brother Lee said. It was in 1938, of course, that he visited England. Watch him, he visited England, and he gave several messages there at Honor Oak, of which were translated into the normal Christian life, sit, walk, stand, and what shall this man do? All of those messages were given in England and translated by Angus Kinnear, Austin Sparks' son-in-law, into just from longhand notes in 1938 and later on were published quite a number of years later. Actually, almost 20 years later. Excuse me. 
I believe that's right, though. He did finish England in 1938. Isn't that right? Yeah. Okay. Then, yeah, that's right. Okay. Then, of course, as they got into the 1940s, the war came. And, of course, Japan invaded uh, Manchuria. And, of course, then the Chinese were fully involved with the war. So there was not too much going on except in Chifu. Where Brother Lee was by this time, he had left Shanghai and the work had sent him back to the North China where he was working there in the church in Shifu. But it was hard to do too much. But we know at that time there was a practical practice of the church life. Brother Ni was unable to get it worked out that fully in Shanghai. But the real model of the practical church life got worked out in Chifu. We know this up until, of course, 1948. Then the communists began to come down from the north. Brother Ni had to leave Chifu because he was listed by the communists as a criminal. And they were the first, he was one of the first ones they wanted in the whole north. So he left. Right after he left, the communists were at the door, knocking, wanting him. And he left and came down to Shanghai. And, of course, we don't need to go into all the details there, but Brother Ni had, had left for some time. He had been out of the ministry, but through Brother Lee coming back, everything was restored in Shanghai. And the church life was doing quite well until 1949. And then it was clear that the communists were going to take over the whole country. And uh, once it was clear the communists were going to take over the whole country, Brother Nee said clearly and strongly to Brother Lee, you have to leave. You have to leave this country. And Brother Nee said to the rest, he called an urgent conference of some of the co-workers, and uh, he told the rest of them, he said, all of the rest of us must stay. Only Brother Lee should go. But of course, not all of them did stay. But that was still Brother Nee's word. So, Brother Lee, he was really quite dumbfounded by this word. He wanted to stay also. He even asked Brother Nee, aren't I worthy to suffer for the Lord like the rest? And Brother Nee shared with him, clearly, the Lord has shown us something. And if we all stay... It could be the communists will kill us all and it will all die here in China. You must go out. He said, take your choice, Hong Kong or Taiwan. You have to go to one of these two places. So after some prayer and consideration, Brother Lee decided to go to Taiwan. And this was in 1949. And as it worked out, he got the last plane that was leaving. The last plane that left Shanghai, he was on it. After that, the communists had the airport. And he is listed today. Brother Lee has a clipping showing he is listed with the communist government in China as an escaped criminal. His name is listed as an escaped criminal. <laughs> Praise the Lord, he escaped. The last plane going out. And so... I think we're all familiar. He went to Taiwan in 1949. And from there, there were about, he says, three to five hundred of the saints that had come from the mainland. Although they had thousands, about six hundred churches all over mainland China. Three to five hundred had gathered 
had made it to Taiwan. So right away they began to meet and to preach the gospel because the situation was quite crucial at that time. You know, because everyone thought that if the communists take over the mainland China, then to take over Taiwan is just a small matter. That's just right off of their shore. Everyone thought Taiwan would be gone. Still there today. But at that time, right before Eisenhower was elected, you see, everyone thought, up until, I should say, Eisenhower was elected, from 49 to 52, once Eisenhower was elected in 1952, he told them, don't touch him. He said, if you touch him, we'll come. So that protected Taiwan. That was something really sovereign of the Lord. So from 49 to 52, it was a prevailing atmosphere to preach the gospel. Because they all didn't think they had any time before the communists would be coming and probably most of them would be killed. So they preached the gospel. They had gospel marches and they preached all over Taiwan, especially the city of Taipei. And they just increased in, in very large amounts. They went from that 500 to about 20,000 within three years' time. And then they continued, of course, to increase. But it was a, a large increase. And the churches, of course, then began to be built up in Taiwan. And Brother Lee, of course, went back to Hong Kong to meet Brother Nee in 1950. This is the last time Brother Lee saw Brother Nee. In 1950, they met in Hong Kong and were there together for a few months. Then Brother Lee tried to persuade Brother Nee, don't go back. Come with me back to Taiwan. But he said, no, all the churches, all the saints need me. I must go back. And so he went back. And, of course, just in two years later, 1952, Brother Nee was put into prison. And he stayed in prison until he died in prison 20 years later. He was in prison for 20 years. From 1952 until June of 1972, where he received the news of his death. So, that was the last time Brother Lee saw Brother Nee. Then, of course, uh, the Lord's move there in China... Well, I should say in Taiwan, the churches begin to grow also and to spread and to be built up. And then, you could say for another ten years quite well, or another nine years. And then it was in 1961 that Brother Lee came to this country. Actually, I have to go back. In 1958, he made a visit to this country. In 1958, he made a visit to this country going through this country on his way to England. And at that time, he spoke at a place in Los Angeles called Westmoreland Chapel. And that's when John Ingalls heard him the first time. It was in Westmoreland Chapel in 1958 in Los Angeles. And, uh, of course, you've heard John share it, I'm sure, but I'll never forget just the one word. Brother Lee had known English all of his life, but he hadn't spoken it that much. He studied it, he could read it, but his speaking wasn't that clear. But the, the way he started his message in 1958 
Because this is what he was beginning to see at that time. He opened the message in this way by saying, Did you eat Jesus today? In his broken English, that's how he began the message. And of course, it shocked everyone. No one had ever heard such a term. But he began by saying, did you eat Jesus today? John said he could never forget that. <laughs> today, that's common to us. But you have to realize in 1958, in this country, no one had ever heard such a word about eating Jesus. And the Lord was showing Brother Lee at that time this very matter. So that's, he spoke on the tree of life. And eating Jesus. And then after visiting there, he went on to, you've heard him say, visit uh, Honor Oak in England. And he stayed there for quite some time. Of course, I think probably we don't need to go into the detail of Austin Sparks having visited Taiwan in, in 1956 and in 1957. And in 1956, everything was fine. In 1957... It wasn't so fine because he did not agree with the ground of the church. Anyway, Brother Lee was responding to his invitation to come to Honor Oak. And so he spoke in Honor Oak for a few weeks there. And his last message was on John and the message to the seven churches. And the main point in that message at Honor Oak that eventually we heard tore the whole thing down was that the ministry is for the church, not the church for the ministry. Showing that John, such a minister and such an apostle, was to the seven churches. The ministry is for the church, not the church for the ministry. Because if you're familiar with the way Austin Sparks operated, it was to have ministry centers. Everything was for his ministry. So Brother Lee just gave that message from Revelation of which he said, it's clear all the ministry, especially the ministry, is for the church. Not the church for the ministry. It's not that we have a church so we can minister. It's that there is the one ministry for the building up of the church. The ministry is for the church. Anyway, later on he heard that eventually it was that word that caused the whole thing there to crumble. (laughs) He didn't intend that. But, if you know the history, there was some trouble caused by uh, Austin Sparks disagreeing with the ground. Anyway... That was in 1958. Then he came back in 1961 to the United States for the purpose of some business matters and some other matters. And it was while he was here in 61 up to around, I believe, September, October of 1962. He was here for some time. He was just fixing to go back to Taiwan because they had a lot of conferences scheduled. A big conference with 10,000 was scheduled. 
But I have to mention, of course, before this, in May of 1962, the church in Los Angeles took the ground and began to meet. They had had, of course, some fellowship with Brother Lee, and Brother Lee did not tell them anything. He just said, you pray, you pray. You just pray, whatever you feel. Actually, in 58, they tried to do nothing. He said, no, don't do anything. And uh, I think in 60, they wanted to do something, and he discouraged it. But by 62, he didn't discourage, he didn't encourage. He just said, pray. So by May of 1962, the church in Los Angeles took the ground in Brother Samuel Chang's home. I believe there in Los Angeles. Well... They had around 30 people, 28 of whom were Chinese. And two, they say, they generally call it two and a half Caucasians, because the half was the sister who eventually, although she stayed a long time, even into Eldon Hall, she left. The two were John Ingalls and Jim Risky. That was the two Caucasians that began to meet in 1962 of May. That's when they took the ground. But Brother Lee was going back to Taiwan. I mean, if they took the ground, that's up to them. But he was going back to Taiwan. He had no burden at all to come to this country. He had not had no consideration. He had no burden. He figured to let the, you know, let just let them take the books and let them do it, whatever. His burden right then was Taiwan, especially in China. They had no burden for this country. Anyway, but it was while he was in this country, at that time, there began to be some things happen to cause some great pressure upon him. Some great pressure. Some real uh, situations that were happening. And through this pressure, of course, he went to the Lord. And he went to the Lord. And he went to the Lord. And the pressure did not let up. It increased and increased and increased. And he went to the Lord. Why, Lord? Why is this happening? Something like this. I don't, of course, have the exact words. I've heard things here and there. But there, I'm just trying to put it all together. Anyway, the decision was, though, eventually he realized the Lord wanted him to stay in this country. This, and the pressure didn't stop. It's not that he said yes and the pressure stopped. That's our concept. No, the pressure continued, but he got clear what the Lord wanted. That was to stay in this country. So he called Brother Samuel Chang. I've heard this story many times. And this was in the fall of 19... Maybe it might have been right at the 1st of December. I think it was, or the last of November of 1962. He called him in Los Angeles and he said... Brother Chang, I'm coming to Los Angeles. Well, they'd heard he was leaving because a big conference was already being scheduled in Taiwan. And he said, you are. Oh, you're coming before you're going back to Taiwan. He said, no, I'm coming to Los Angeles to stay. He said, oh, you're going to stay two or three weeks. He said, no, I'm coming to Los Angeles to stay indefinitely. Well, they were all just shocked. And so Brother Lee came. He was in the States. He came to Los Angeles and in 1962 December they began to pray and they had the first conference in December of 1962 which in an old house in Los Angeles in front of about 70 people he released the messages of the all-inclusive Christ this was the real beginning of the ministry for the Lord's recovery in this country. Now, 
I can go back a little bit and tell you a little bit of my personal testimony. I was saved at the age of eight. Really saved. I remember riding horseback in West Texas. We got down off of our horses and we prayed and I received the Lord. But I have to even go back further than that to let you know that uh, just like your life, my life wasn't easy either. My parents were divorced when I was five years old. And uh, this was very hard on me. My father left. And I live with my mother and my sister from five years on on. And of course, if you come from that kind of a situation, you realize what it does to you psychologically. And when I started school, I, had, I was very scared of everything. Because, you know, your security has just been jerked right out from under you. And I remember from the first grade, the second grade, the first, the third grade, the fourth grade, and the fifth grade, every time we had a test, some kind of test, I would cry. I would just cry because I, I had nothing behind me. No backing. No security. No nothing. Uh, this is the kind of shape I was in. Is the Lord's mercy. Then, saved at eight, went on through high school. And uh, in high school, I was successful in several things. Uh, no need to mention what. <laughs> but it was by being successful in those things in several different areas that it kind of propped me up a little bit. But then when I went to college, I found out everybody in college had been a star in high school. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, I mean, I hit the bottom. My first year in college, I, I went to the bottom. I just hit a deep depression. And the whole thing of the insecurity of my father leaving and everything and of growing up in such a way, it hit me so hard in my first year in college. And I had no choice but to turn to the Lord. I had no choice but to, to, to just... The only, that was the only place I had to go was to the Lord. And so... I was, uh, my father was a lawyer, had three uncles that were lawyers. Eventually now I have two brothers that are lawyers, three brothers that are lawyers, five cousins that are lawyers. Everybody were lawyers. So I was in pre-law at Texas Tech University in Lubbock, Texas. I was going to be a lawyer too. But as I more and more began to turn to the Lord, at that time I was in the Southern Baptist denomination. I did not know anything of life that much. I just knew I had to have the Lord. But the more I would uh, pray in the feeble way I did, uh, accidentally, no doubt, I would hit the switch every now and then. <laughs> I didn't know about my spirit. I didn't even know Christ was in me. But I, uh, I, I was desperate to pray, so I touched Him occasionally. It became clear then I could not continue in pre-law. I had no burden to go that direction. Well, of course, in a denomination, there's only one other thing to do, and that is to serve the Lord in some kind of capacity. So, uh, I went forward in the invitation and said, I want to serve the Lord. So, then I began to prepare my uh, college in that direction to go to seminary. So I graduated from seminary, from college, in 1957. I was 21 years old. 
I should have been beginning college at that time instead of graduating. And at the same time, not too long after that, then my mother died, which was the only home I had. Uh, and so by the time I was 21, in a sense, I was really on my own. Or a little over, a little past that. Then when I went to the seminary, Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas, the largest seminary in the world. And it still is, but it doesn't mean much. I went there. It didn't take me long. I think it was because I had been so desperate to touch the Lord, to seek the Lord because of the, I know other words to use, but of the insecurity that it built up because of my family's divorce and been raised in the way that I had. I'd been so desperate to touch the Lord, I think I knew a little bit of how to touch the Lord. A little bit. Just very teeny. Anyway, it didn't take me one semester to realize this whole seminary thing was a farce. It was a union card. That's the way I looked at it. I told her, it's a union card. I realized, I'll go ahead, I'll get the degree because you've got to have your union card. There's nothing there. Nothing there really for the Lord. The only thing I received, I got the degree, the only thing that's worth anything was Greek and Hebrew. The rest of it is not worth, a, worth anything. Of course, this is my opinion. Others may have another opinion, but this is mine. Anyway, so I graduated from the cemetery. <laughs> it's amazing if you would just be around that kind of place. Young men come in burning for the Lord, you know, loving the Lord, burning. Of course, all they know is to preach the gospel. You know, this is what Southern Baptist especially are very strong for. Preach the gospel. And, of course, the only gospel they know is redemption, salvation from hell to go to heaven. But it, you still get saved. It's still, you know, it's still not bad. And they come burning, but the time they leave, they're dead. It's a real cemetery. There's no such thing as, as that kind of school in the Bible. The church should be the place where we learn the word to the uttermost. And it is the place. I take any member here knows far more of the word than the greatest professor in any cemetery. I guarantee it. There's, where can you find Bible schools and seminaries in the Bible? It's not there. But you find the church. It's in the church that the word is our living faith. And the Word becomes part of our being, and no doubt, this is our, our true case today. Okay, when I graduated, it was in January, because uh, the Master of Theology degree that I took was a three-year course, but I had crammed it into three and a half years. And uh, therefore, I graduated in January. Yeah. I meant what I said. I crammed a three-year course into three and a half years. So I graduated in January. I graduated in January of 1961. In January of 1961. Okay, I have to mention just a little bit. Before this time, I had no desire, although I got the so-called degree that the pastors get. I had, 
had some experience both in leading singing and in preaching at the so-called youth-led revivals that were conducted by Southern Baptists among their churches in Texas. And that's what I would do all summer, every summer. The first after even the, before I got out of college, I did it. Every summer, we would go to these churches and, you know, it would be conducted through the Department of Student Work in Dallas. I mean, they got the organization. And we would go everywhere, you know, holding youth-led but church-wide revivals. <laughs> and uh, I started off leading the singing. Eventually, I ended up speaking some. But I, the more I was in those revivals, the less I had any desire to pastor. I mean, we were just young guys, 21, 22 years old. We would go to these churches and these pastors of some of these large churches would come to us young guys and just pour out all of their... I said how, how hard it is and the people and this and that. They're all even... If they had any experience at all, they would explain just how fleshly the people are. There's no way to go on. This and that. This is all I ever heard from the pastors. Nothing positive. So I decided from that that the pastor wasn't for me. Well, I was just... I didn't make any actual decision. I just never had any desire. I never entered that way. I was never ordained ever. Praise the Lord. <laughs> that doesn't mean for those who have there's any problem, but I just never was. So when I graduated, it was in January. And uh, so I continued on to do more graduate work for one semester. Then in June, or should I say earlier than that, a little before June of 1961, I was called to Dallas because they wanted to offer me the position of the Baptist Student Union director. You're probably not familiar. Some of you may be at BSU. The BSU director at a Baptist college in Plainview, Texas, which is up in the Panhandle. So, uh, actually, I had been active in the BSU in college, etc. So, this seemed quite good to me, to do student work, to work with students. And so, in June of 1961, I went to this campus, Whalen Baptist College in Plainview, Texas. When I got there in June of 61, there was a note. When they showed me my office, and I went into my office, there was a note on my desk from a junior in the college. Uh, actually, he was just... I believe uh, finishing his junior year, a note on my desk welcomed me to the school because my title also as BSU director was Director of Religious Activities. <laughs> and actually that's what was written over the door of my office, Director of Religious Activities. And we had them too, believe me. And it so happened there was a, a group of uh, those who were uh, either going to be preachers or missionaries that was in a, a certain kind of club on campus that were taking a mission trip uh, during that time, during the summer, I think it was to uh, the Northwest at the time, and the president of that group is the one, they were already on the trip, but he left me a note on my desk, welcomed me to the school, and signed... Vincent Phillips. And uh, that was the first time I heard that word, uh, that name, Vincent Phillips. And so when he came back, I wasn't there. I was gone again. I just stayed a, 
a little bit during the summer, and then I had obligations still with these kind of revival meetings the rest of the summer. But as a read, I'd go there and get set up and then take care of that. Then I came back in the fall of 1971, and of course there is where I met Benson. And eventually, I think all of you know, a number of brothers in the churches in Texas were in that school. I think I can list a good number of them. Benson Phillips, Ben McPherson, Ray Graver, Tim House, Jim Coleman, of course, Rodney Phillips, and all their wives. They were all there, just about. Uh, Bobby Allen, if you know him in Houston. Uh, Anyway, there's about 20 of us. 20 of us that was in that school at that time uh, that I think are still in the recovery. Barry Morgan, by the way, also went to Wayland Baptist College. Yeah, but he graduated in May of 61 before I got there in June of 61. So I never met him. But it was interesting he was there. Lusby Kirk was also in Wayland Baptist College, but he just lightly touched us at that time, and he was touched later on in Lubbock, Texas. So, uh, we had the first year there. Okay, you know, we had our religious activities. And uh, I worked with the students. Actually, you have to realize this school was not that large. You want to guess how many students? 600. Can you believe the Lord got all of us together in that one little school? Of course, this is how things got started in Texas. Anyway, 1961, we went through our thing. We did all of our little activities. And uh, we went through the summer of 61. And we're getting ready for... Uh, or I should say, then into 62 to finish that school year, fall of 61, spring of 62. Then, came back in the fall of 62, it was Benson's senior year. Oh, I should also say Elton Carr was there. But he wasn't there the first year. He came back in the fall of 62. And he had been there for two years and he left to go out to pastor. Uh, you know, after two years in college, he went in Oregon to pastor. And by the time he tried that for two years, he was totally defeated. You know, but he came by my office and introduced himself to me because he was older than the rest of them. Actually, I wasn't that old myself. I went there, I think I was 25 when I went there. And... uh, Of course, in November of 61, uh, Brad was born. Our oldest son, Brad, was born in November of 61 there in Plainview, Texas. Then in 62, uh, we're in the fall, you know, you do all your things. You got all your retreat, preschool retreats and all of that stuff and everything. But I still, I enjoyed student work. I still had no desire to get in any kind of pastorate. I did do some speaking here and there. But... When it came to... Now, you have to realize, you see, Brother Lee is coming to Los Angeles at this time. 62. The fall of 62, Brother Lee comes to Los Angeles in December, or the beginning of December of 62. And he and John Ingalls and Brother Chang, I believe, right at the beginning of 62, begin to pray. And they came together every morning to pray. 
This is December of 62. And they prayed, Lord, you must stir up the seeking ones all over this country. You must stir them up. And they prayed every day for four weeks until they had the conference at the close of December of 1962. They prayed in this way every day. So as we came then to December of 62, we had what is called the campus revival. Uh, that was kind of an old term, actually. Most of the campuses, Baptist campuses, had adopted a new term, such as focus week or something like this. They didn't like the word revival that much. But uh, Wayland was a little more conservative, which is probably good, because that's the reason some of these guys came, because they knew this was a place, you know, they, it was more for the Lord. But they were working very hard to make it more academic and less for the Lord. And they, of course, succeeded. <laughs> but in December of 1962, the president of the campus, of the college, invite, did a terrible thing. He invited to speak at the campus revival a person who was not a Baptist. <laughs> you just you just do not do this <laughs> among Southern Baptists, especially not just Baptists. You got to be Southern Baptist. You just don't do this. But unknown to us at that time, he was planning to retire at the end of that year, so he didn't care. <laughs> He knew it would cause some stirring. You know, he knew. He knew it would cause some stirring. But he had heard through the vice president of a man from England by, who went by the name of Major Ian Thomas. Maybe some of you have heard of him in his books, The Saving Life of Christ, Mystery of Godliness, etc. Anyway, at this time he only had the one book, The Saving Life of Christ. And he invited Major Thomas to come for the campus revival. Well, I was a little offended, too, because the campus revival was totally under my directions as the director of religious activities. <laughs> and I was a staunch Baptist. I mean, true blue, down the line. And uh, I was a little bothered, too. So to prepare... <laughs> to prepare... For his coming, we got his book. We, the bookstore ordered a number of copies. The Saving Life of Christ. You wouldn't believe that book mainly is based on one verse. Romans 5.10. Much more saved. Of course, King James by his life. And uh, so I began to read the book. And uh, as I began to read the book, I saw nothing. <laughs> it's amazing how you can read something and see nothing. But I did see mentally, I saw mentally, that his message was Jesus Christ living in us. I even picked that up mentally, but I never saw it. I just picked up mentally. His message was Jesus. So we even, with uh, the guy that was going to be leading the singing, of course we had a choir and everything, we worked out a little song. Uh, and we had it for a while in something, but it didn't last very long. But anyway, a little song at that time for that as the theme song for that campus revival called Not I But Christ. It was Not I But Christ, my song shall be, something like that. Not I But Christ who lives in me. 
now that I have found him as my complete sufficiency, no longer I but Christ who lives his life in me. We even wrote that song. I still didn't see it. <laughs> okay. Now you have to realize, Brother Lee and the brothers are praying. And this guy comes. And he begins to speak. And I don't know, I believe he had the most anointing he ever had in his life. <laughs> I really think so because I heard him later. Those meetings were so anointed as he began to share that the Christian life is Jesus Christ. It is not you. It is not what you can do. It is not you doing anything, but it is Jesus Christ living in you. Amen. That He is the Christian life. And I have to tell you, those two statements that we gave during the conference, the life that He lived qualified Him for the death that He died. The death that He died qualified us for the life that He lived came from Major Thomas. Those two statements came from him. But I've kept them all these years. I never used them. <laughs> but I thought they fit those messages so well. Anyway, you can see from just those two statements, he did see something of Christ as life. And I believe he had some experience. He was from England. And he shared, and he shared, I mean, in verse after verse after verse. And the light came. I mean, the light came. It just came in those meetings. And for the first time in my life, I saw that Jesus Christ was in me. Jesus Christ was in me. I had never seen such a thing. And a big weight just fell off my back. For the first time, I realized I did not have to try to live the Christian life. Of course, the problem is, he painted a beautiful picture with no door to get in. He ended up by saying, it's by faith. But still, let me tell you, at the same time, uh, I had gotten a hold of Brother Lawrence's little book, Practicing the Presence. And although I realize now that book may not be the best, it was a great help at that time because I began to pray, speaking to the Lord all the time concerning His living in me. So in doing that, no doubt, I realized many times I touched my spirit. Although, Major Thomas, although he gave one message on spirit, soul, and body, it was totally doctrinal. It was not practical. Anyway, though, the light came. I mean, the light came. The light came. And it didn't just come with me. It came with a number of the students, you see, that we had fellowship with. Especially, of course, these ones that are in the church today. The light came that the Christian life is Jesus Christ. It was marvelous. And I'd quoted Galatians 2.20 hundreds of times. But for the first time, I saw Galatians 2.20. And I went through, you know, I went through the New Testament and uh, underlined every verse that said anything about the indwelling Christ or the indwelling Spirit. And uh, I just, right away, I said, this is right. This man is right. And I remember telling my wife, I said, if this is right, if the Christian life is Jesus Christ, Living His life 
in us and through us. I said, then Southern Baptists are absolutely off. At the end of the time that Major Thomas was there, he said, and of course, you know, everybody, at least 600 or more, heard him. Because he was very eloquent. He's very eloquent, he's very gifted, and he's also saw something of life. So people were attracted, although they didn't see what he said. Most, of course, didn't see a thing. But he said at the end of those messages, and I've still got them by tape, he said at the end, he said, if there are six of you here that see what I'm talking about, I'll be satisfied. Well, I want to tell you something. By the Lord's mercy, not only were there more than six, but we saw more than he did. Because his idea was to take this matter of life into the denominations and bring life to the denominations. But right away I saw, I said, if this is right, if the Christian life is Jesus Christ Himself, then where can you get all this organization? You can't organize Jesus Christ. I said, denominations are through if this is right. I remember saying this word because I wasn't clear much about anything but I was just I don't know I was in the heavens seeing Jesus was in me and the Christian life was Him of course His message leaves no ground for transformation for anything like that I mean once you see it you just start living Him it's just that easy you know by an attitude of faith you just start off and Christ lives in you he doesn't have any concept of growth or transformation that much. Uh, I have to go back. I don't want to. I would have to go back and read again. He might. But I do know this. He saw a lot of things. He saw that Canaan was Christ. He saw Canaan was Christ and uh, the wilderness and all of these things. And he said, of course, most Christians are today are in the wilderness. Anyway, he was very good on this one verse, though. Romans 5.10. Having been reconciled to, through his death, much more we are saved by his life. And he said there are these two aspects of salvation. Two aspects. And the second is the much more. The much more. That is his life. Well, the light just came. And not just to me, but guess who? To all of these brothers and these sisters who later became their wives. But, of course, we weren't that clear. We weren't that clear about much, but we saw Jesus Christ was in us. We saw that much. And no doubt it had a lot to do with that prayer of Brother Lee and the brothers. Sure, that the light came. The same time they were praying, uh, we were preparing. The same time all-inclusive Christ was being shared, we were hearing the words for the first time that Jesus Christ was in us. So no doubt it was all sovereign. So after that time, I was, I was turned upside down. The first thing I remember was, believe it or not, I had the book, The Normal Christian Life. I had it. I had uh, read the last chapter one time when I was in a so-called revival, and the pastor had it. And he told me to read the last chapter, Why This Waste? And I read the last chapter, Why This Waste? And of course, like 
any person in that kind of upbringing and what you're doing. When I read that chapter, Why This Waste, I said, this will make a good sermon. That was my only concept. And I had no concept of being wasted on the Lord myself. <laughs> my thought was, this will make a good sermon. So I ordered the book. You couldn't find it anywhere because the first copy, I've got one of the first ones that was printed in 1957 in Bombay, India. Uh, which was done by Victory Press, but they printed it in, Eng in India. And so I ordered it and I got it, you know, and I still like that last chapter. I, I could identify with that, but when I tried to read the rest of it, I mean, I just could not understand one thing this guy was talking about. I read the chapter on the blood. I didn't mean anything. I couldn't see anything. I read the cross and everything. I couldn't see anything. I knew he had something. He had to have something. All of these verses and what he was saying. But I just couldn't see. But after Major Thomas came and the light came, I realized that's what Watchman Nee was talking about. And I went back to the normal Christian life and devoured it. And it didn't take me long to realize, by the Lord's mercy, that this man, Watchman Nee, had more than the one the Lord used to open my eyes. It didn't take too long. And I read in the years 1962 to 1963, within a one, one uh, year time, I read that book five times. Five times. Every time I underlined it. And eventually the whole book was underlined. <laughs> Every time I underlined something else I hadn't underlined, the time I read it five times, forget it. Everything this man says is something. So, so I realized this uh, was what Watchman was talking about before Major Thomas left. And so I asked him, I said, have you ever heard of Watchman Nee? I think he shares something like this. He says, yes, I've, I said, have you heard of Watchman Nee's book? That's what I said, The Normal Christian Life. I think it's something like this. Have you ever read that book? And he said, no, I don't need to read it. I know what's in it. The British are very proud people. But he did need to read it because his concept was that Adam had the Holy Spirit and he lost it at the fall. But if he had read The Normal Christian Life, it would become clear Adam never had the life of God. He never had it to lose. So he could have been helped. He did need to read it, but he didn't. To this day, he's an opponent of the church. Well, I'll tell you why. <laughs> he got blamed for a lot of things that happened there. Okay. <laughs> so he was there, and from then on, I had no desire for the organizational programs of the Baptist Student Union or a Baptist or anything. I just wanted to go and share about Christ being in you. And wherever I went, when I had the opportunities, the people loved it, but the pastors hated it. And eventually, that was just, it just took me one year. That was December of 62, and of course we went into the spring. And I have to realize, in the spring of 63, before school was out, oh, by the way, I have to tell you this, the bookstore, the bookstore was in the main administration building where my office was, and of course we had ordered all the Thomas books, and then I, I, order, I had him order for the students 
all of Watchman Nee's books. <laughs> Everything we find. I think uh, by that time there were the three. Norm Christian Life, sit, walk, stand, and what shall this man do? Those three were out. So he ordered them. And I have to say this also. There were about, I would say, 20 students eventually. But maybe there were 30 at the time. There were about 30 students that saw what Major Thomas said. Not all of them came in, you see. It's one thing to see. It's another thing to come in. There were over 30 that saw. And these 30 then, because they realized I saw. It's something because you're now you're in a school of 600 people and only 30 see what he's talking about. And all the rest continue on in their activities and doing things for God and trying to live the Christian life by their behavior and all of this. You realize how much fellowship means. And so these 30 were coming by my office all the time. And I was giving them all normal Christian life. Sid walk, stand. What shall this one do? I just, and I was sending them down to the bookstore when I ran out of money and have them buy it themselves. And so all of these students were reading Watchman Nee for a year. And some of them would go out on student trips. You know, the churches would invite, uh, ask my office to send some young people to hold a weekend youth meeting or youth-led revival. And they would go out. These brothers I would send would go out and speak about Christ being in you. And I would get letters back from the pastor saying, this is not what we wanted. And eventually, I got in trouble myself. I had always been a true blue Southern Baptist. I was a fair-haired boy. I had never caused any problems. I was, I mean, never. But when I began to speak, not about the church, just about Christ living in you, I began to get criticism. And it was caused, called mainly pacifism. You know, you're just passive. You don't do anything. You just, you know, uh, some guys are very active. You go, 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 go until most of them go. Period. <laughs> and it was called pacifism. The, uh, the BSU director at West Texas State University, which is in Canyon, Texas, between Plainview and Amarillo in the panhandle of Texas, he heard some of these things and he called us the barbarians. You know, in other words, we begin to, I mean, I'd never gotten criticism before in my life. But I knew according to the word this was right. What's the problem? This is what people need. In other words, I tried for a year to put the new wine in the old wine skin. It won't work. <laughs> I think probably we all tried in some way or other. I tried the people were hungry for it. They were defeated, you know, weary, worn to hear a word like this. And I remember one fellow came up to me afterwards and he said, that, I really enjoyed that. He said, you never got that from anything of Southern Baptist teaching, did you? I said, no, I sure didn't. That's all I said. So I hope I'm not going into too much detail here. <laughs> so, for a year, I began to make waves in the Southern Baptist Convention. Of course, now you realize the Lord was just preparing us. He was really preparing us. Because such a staunch Southern Baptist as me needed some things shaken loose a little bit. So, then I began to see, man, nobody wants to hear this word. But I realized the people did. And then, 
one pastor that I went and held a weekend of meetings. And, of course, all they want is the numbers. They want to get the people saved. But I spoke on Christ as life. But I did give one gospel message and several got saved. So he should have been happy. But he wasn't happy. He wrote a letter. And you have to realize the way it's set up in the uh, Southern Baptist organizational system. My boss was not in that school. My boss was in Dallas. The head of the Department of Student Work in Dallas was my boss. And I was just responsible to the president. But the president, as you know, was going to re resign that first year. So I was free. I was free. If I didn't even show up for a week, it didn't well, no matter. Of course, I did because I had a conscience. But I mean, I was free. So I would occasionally go. But eventually, I got called on the carpet. And in the summer, I say, of course, in June, then... When school was out in June of 1963, Brent was born. So we had the two boys, Brad and Brent. Amen. Amen. <laughs> and, of course, I was very impressed with Watchman Nee, and I wanted to name him Brent Nee. <laughs> I wish I had a... But I thought it sounded a little too Chinesey, so eventually I named him Brent Murray. No, uh, what did I name Brent Carey? I have to say what I said. I wanted to also name him Andrew after Andrew Murray then, because I'd read Andrew Murray's book. So I was going to name him Brent Murray, but uh, my wife didn't like that because of the initials. So we didn't name him that. So eventually, I named him Brent Carey, put it that way. <laughs> After William Carey, the first missionary, the first Baptist missionary, put it that way. <laughs> so into the summer then of 1963, I got called on the carpet by the head of the Department of Student Work over the Southern Baptist in Texas. <laughs> Because, and he told me plainly, he did not agree because, man, all we had been doing is having meetings, talking to students, all of the devotionals, everything was about Christ in you, Christ in you, Christ in you. Amen. And, of course, the word was getting out everywhere because not everybody liked it. Just about us 30 liked it. The rest didn't like it. <laughs> so they called me on the carpet and the head of the department student work told me he said I do not agree with your philosophy of a Baptist student program of, a, of the BSU program on a Baptist campus that's what he said and I realized I was in trouble now what was I going to do I either had to go back to the dead organization, organizational system of Southern Baptist or leave and I didn't know what to do. But he was a gracious man, I have to say this. He said, I'm not any way threatening you that you have to resign or that you have to leave. But I just want to let you know I don't agree with what you're doing. He was a very gracious man, I have to admit. But I realized I was in trouble. So we come to the fall of 1963. And we enter that school year. And of course, there's still some. Benson graduated and left. He was partially going to seminary and partially involved in a navigator program. But he was living in Dallas. Elton left, graduated, but he got a job 
there in plain view and he remained there. Of course, I started to say I didn't finish in the spring of 1963, before school was out, before I got called on the carpet. I have to go back. This is important. Since I had been ordering auto Watchman's books through the bookstore, the bookstore manager showed me a leaflet of a new book by Watchman Nee, The Normal Christian Church Life. He said, should I order this? And I said, yes, get it. <laughs> so he ordered two copies. And I got one, and I read it. And I didn't see a thing. <laughs> My burden was, we've got to get life into the Baptist churches. What, you know, this, what does, that might have worked in China. It never worked here. That's just about, that's how much I saw. It's amazing how little we see. But Elton Carr picked up the other copy. He was going to the bookstore and he saw it and he grabbed it up. And I have to say, Elton was even more, a little more open than I was. He thought it was really great. But I said, how can that work here? You know, I was still just, my thought was, we've got to get life into Baptist churches. We've got to get the new wine in these old wineskins. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Eventually it burst. So we came to the fall of 1963. And of course, by this time, of course, uh, Brother Lee had been uh, traveling some over the country and traveling around. And uh, even... Not known to us, in the summer of 63, he met a person who invited him to come to Texas in September of 1963 in Tyler, Texas. And he came because he had to go to New York to take care of his immigration because that's where he came into the United States and he was trying to get his green card to become a citizen. And so he had, so on the way to New York, he came and spoke to a little group there of navigator Bible classes in Tyler, Texas, and then went on. And, but having spoken to them, they liked so much that they wrote him or called him, I don't know which, in New York and said, when you come back through, you must stop for one week. We demand it. You can't give us this much and leave us this way. So... We began, of course, the fall, and uh, we had our preschool retreat. And uh, in having our preschool retreat, what could we do but talk about the Word and about Christ as life? But there showed up the assistant director of the student program for the state of Texas, unannounced, not telling us to see what we were doing. And he came and he was there with a frown over everything. And later he wrote me a letter to tell me how pitiful that whole thing was. So I began to realize I cannot stay here much longer. I didn't know where I was going to go, what I was going to do. So we come to November of 1963. A friend of mine who had also been reading Watchman Nee's books, who was a Southern Baptist evangelist, he heard that a co-worker of Watchman Nee by the name of Witness Lee was going to be speaking in Tyler, Texas. And this was Brother Lee now coming back from New York, back to Los Angeles and stopping in Tyler. This was in November. He stopped the first time in September. Then he came back through in November. So he heard that he was going to be there and he went. And he went and he heard him. And so he heard him Friday and he heard him Saturday. Now, wait a minute. He heard him Friday. That was it. And Friday night, somewhere around 10.30 or 11, I got a phone call. And it was him. He was sitting there in the same room 
with the host that had invited Brother Lee there, with Brother Lee and him. And as Brother Lee said later, he never believed anything would happen out of this. Anyway, he told me, he said, you have to come. Of course, he's still today a Southern Baptist evangelist. But he told me then, you have to come. A co-worker of Watchman Nee is here. You have to come. Whatever it costs, sell your wife, sell everything. You have to come. Well, Abraham did. Well, he didn't have to say a word. Listen, by this time, I was so fed up with the Southern Baptist system, the Lord did a good job. <laughs> I was no longer a true blue Southern Baptist. I was set up with I was fed up with the whole thing and I'd been like you say, I had read the normal Christian life now for five times, eventually having underlined the whole book. And then then a co worker of Watchman in this country, I would have swam there. I would have done anything to get there. Whatever it would have taken to got there. So he didn't have to say anything. Once he said a co-worker of Watchman Nee. And the, there was this was Friday night. The next meeting was Saturday morning at 10 o'clock. And it was 500 miles away. I was there. I borrowed the money. Caught a plane out of Lubbock. Drove my little Volkswagen to Lubbock. Caught a plane. Came into Tyler. Got in. Just as the meeting been going, about 15 minutes. And they still were praying and stuff. And then this little Chinese man stood up. And he began to speak on Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 23. How in Genesis 1 and 2 you have the tree of life. And in Revelation 21 and 2, you have the tree of life. The first two chapters of the Bible, you have a river flowing. The last two chapters are rivers flowing. first two chapters, you have precious material. Gold, dalium, which is pearl, and onyx stone, precious stone. And in the last two chapters of the Bible, you have a city built up with these precious materials. Gold, pearl, and precious stone. I mean, my I was writing so fast, it, my, my pencil was smoking. I wrote I, I had never heard anything like this. I never heard. And to me, my thought right away was, this is the same as hearing Watchman Nee. It's exactly the same person. I realized the name was different, but as far as I was concerned, from having devoured that book so long and really had gotten into the ministry, the one unique ministry of the New Testament, I realized this is the same. It's just like hearing Watchman Nee. I had never heard anything like that. And in those days, Brother Lee held three meetings. We had a morning meeting, we had an afternoon meeting, and we had an evening meeting. Then, I had to go back. I had just uh, planned to come that one day, and I had some responsibilities back. The next day was the Lord's Day. So I flew, but I told him. I told, I think I told the host there. I told him to tell Brother Lee I would be back. But I also talked to him. That's right. I did talk to him. He said, yes, be sure and come back. Come back and whatever we do on the Lord's Day, you can hear the tape of it. So, uh, of course, he was surprised I came, that I even showed up. 
because he was there when the phone call was made. So I went back, and like I said, I was responsible only to the president, and I could do what I wanted to. I'd only taken one week off for my two-week vacation, so I just, on my own, took the next week off because he was going to be there the whole next week. So I got my wife, and three students came with me. And I also called Benson in Dallas and told him about it. And the three students that came, two of them didn't make it. One of them was Sharon Coleman, Jim Coleman's wife. But there was a brother by the name of Jim Reed and another sister by the name of Linda Shipman. And then Sharon Coleman. We drove to Dallas and there we met Benson. And Benson decided not to go. So we went on then and got to Tyler for the evening meeting on Monday. We drove all day, got up early Monday morning, and got to Tyler 500 miles away that evening. And we heard Brother Lee all week long. And just day after day, morning, uh, I guess it was just morning and evening then. Morning and evening. It was held in a woman's club in Tyler, Texas. It started through these Navigator Bible classes. But eventually, it was amazing. It started with 400 people in September. When he came in November, there were 200 people. By the time it went on, it went down to 100 people because he was talking about life. And there's not that many people. Especially among that group, it was a kind of a hobby type thing among the rich elite. If you don't know anything about Tyler, Texas, it has more millionaires per capita than any city in the United States. And it was a kind of a lot of rich elite kind of a hobby, Bible hobby class, you know. So they didn't, uh, they weren't that interested. But, uh, of course, later on, Brother Lee said those meetings in Tyler were just for us. There's no doubt about it. Anyway, but there were some others there, you know, who in Tyler who did come into the church life. Some of them came for a while and left. Some of them stayed. Those that are stayed are uh, Bob Bynum. He was there. And Gene DeBerry. He also was there at that time. So, after hearing Brother Lee for a week, you can imagine hearing him for a week. I asked to have a time with him. And I said, you know, he already knew, of course, all about me. That They had told him everything. <laughs> and uh, what I was, what I was doing. I said, Brother Lee, okay. I had read, like I said, the normal Christian church life. I didn't understand it. But I knew if this man takes that way, it's got to be right. I didn't see the church yet. But I realized if this man takes that way, it must be right. Mm. So I came to him and I said, Brother Lee, what do I do? Do I quit my job? Do I leave the denomination? What do I do? You know, whatever he had told me, I'd have done it just like that. He said, quit your job, leave the denomination, move to Los Angeles, whatever. I'd have done it. So I said, what do I do, Brother Lee? And he said... You pray, brother. You pray. That was it. You pray. Okay, so I went back now to Wayland Baptist College. 
after a week here in Witness Lee. Of course, a lot of it was over my head. I didn't understand a lot of it. He gave at the end messages on Deuteronomy and how you have to bring everything to Jerusalem and all of that, but I didn't understand what he's talking about. I didn't understand anything. I just knew I saw a man. If he took this way, that's where I'm going. So, when I left, I also, then I found out he was going to have a conference in Los Angeles, the December conference of 1963. So, I knew I was going to be there. That was it. And I told him I would be there and uh, hopefully bring some students with me. So, I went back. After a week of hearing him, And I sat there in my office and watched the students file back and forth, you know, on the hall, hallway. And I felt like it was, you know, I felt like I was in a morgue watching corpses walk. You know, just like, that's exactly how it looked to me. No life, everything, totally dead. Absolutely no life here. I never had such a feeling. I I thought, it's just like everybody was dead. The whole place was dead. So I got the tapes. I got the tapes. Another brother that was from Odessa, where Francis Ball was. But Francis Ball hadn't heard anything yet. But he was from Odessa, and it was through him, Francis Ball, eventually got to hear Brother Lee. He had the tapes. He recorded everything. So I went, and of course these were, in those days we had those big reel-to-reel recorders, that was it. You know, and I had to carry this big old thing, and we didn't have any way to dupe a tape except play the whole thing the whole time for the whole hour's message or whatever it was to get one message, then play the next one to get through until I had, I think, I don't know how many messages from the whole week. But I went there and stayed two days, and we covered it, message after message after message, from one real recorder to the other one with a little thing going between. But yeah, there's no way you could speed it up. You just had to do it that way. That's, that was it. But I got all the tapes, and then I came back and uh, played and began to play those tapes at my home. And I let it known mainly among those 30 students who saw something through Major Thomas, this including all these brothers we mentioned. There's a lot more. I just can't think of their names. Uh, and we get, begin to play them every night in my home. And, of course, then it, by that time, I made the decision. To quit my job. I didn't know what I was going to do. I had no idea what I was going to do. I just knew I had to be in Los Angeles. And in order to keep my job, I was supposed to be in a seminar of all the BSU directors for the whole state of Texas for that time. Well, I wasn't about to go there. I was going to be in Los Angeles. Witness Lee was in Los Angeles. That's where I was going. So I called to resign. I waited two weeks. Brother Lee said, pray. But I didn't have to pray. I knew. You didn't have to pray. I knew. But I waited two weeks. I remember getting out my seminary uh, student handbook that has all the pictures of the professors, you know, that helped me in Greek and my Greek 
professor especially because he really wanted me to stay and go into graduate work, get my doctorate, major in Greek and all this stuff. And I didn't. <laughs> Praise the Lord. I didn't quite have the grades. Praise the Lord. If I had of I'm out of anyway, I started looking through and I started looking at this professor and that professor and this professor, Doctor So and so here, Doctor So and so. And I remember asking the question, can all these people be wrong? And I was asking it to the Lord. I said, Lord, can all these people be wrong? And the answer came just as plain as it could be. And it's not what you might think. He didn't answer, yes, they're all wrong. The answer came, the, the question is not whether these people are right or wrong. The question is, are you going to follow me or not? Amen. I said, Amen. <laughs> Get that. So... Eventually, six of us went to the December conference in Los Angeles, 1963. In my little Volkswagen went Ben McPherson and Ray Graver. In another car, Rodney, of course, borrowed Benson's car. Because Benson hadn't heard anything yet. He just kind of heard that we were kind of kind of crazy now. <laughs> He had sure nobody had done anything. But I have to bring up this point. There's a lot of things here. Before before we left, I knew if I went there to hear this man again, I'm finished. You know, I knew as far as Southern Baptists, it's over. I resigned my job and I called Dallas to resign my job on November the twenty second, nineteen sixty three. Do you know what date that was? That was the date Kennedy was shot in Dallas. And I called. He was shot at noon. And I called right before noon, around 10.30 or 11. And uh, the man was out that I had to speak to. So I told him I would call again in the afternoon. And then, of course, Kennedy was shot at noon. I went home and found out the news. Of course, and then I went back. And here I have to call Dallas. All the lines were jammed and everything. I thought the call was never would go through. And I was sort of hoping it wouldn't. Because I didn't know what I was doing. I'm going to quit my job. What am I going to do? Where am I going? You see, there wasn't any church to see in those days. There was nothing. I just saw a man. And so I saw a man. <laughs> Hallelujah. So I called Again, that afternoon, the call went right through. And I told him, I have to resign. I cannot be at the seminar for the directors. And so he agreed then, you see, this is around Thanksgiving time, that I would work up until the uh, Pagamus holidays. And then at Pagamus time, I would be finished. <laughs> I don't like to put Christ's name to something that's pagan. So I call it paganist. <laughs> so it was agreed that I, my job would terminate at the beginning of the paganist holidays. <laughs> so that was wonderful to me on one hand. 
And then I had a, another, I think, two weeks vacation coming or something or one week. And he said, of course, you'll get your vacation pay. you get everything. So I realized I had enough money to last me through January anyway. <laughs> so I hope, how much time we got? <laughs> so we went, six of us. In the other car was Rodney Phillips, Benson's brother. He borrowed Benson's car to go. Oh, 1956 Chevrolet. And we went in my 58 Volkswagen. <laughs> and we made it. I remember it cost $11 to go from Texas to Los Angeles. <laughs> Eleven dollars. Gas was cheaper. Everything. Uh, this was, of course, December sixty. Then, brotherly shared. We were there ten days. Ten days. That was it, boy. Finished. Gone. It's over. <laughs> and of course, in the sharing, he shared clearly, clearly on the ground of the church. And the new wine is for the new wine skin. And you can't put new wine in old wine skin. I mean, I got clear, crystal clear. I got crystal clear about everything concerning the ground of the church anyway. I got very clear. I realized it's all over. 